Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. The Wall Street Journal has a fascinating and, for writers, an uplifting front-page article to begin the new year. It's titled, Does Anyone Want to Come to My Book Signing? Please. And the subtitle is, Even Star Writers Have Experienced the Embarrassment of a Lonely Book Signing. The article is written by Chris Cornelis. I read the article and smiled, thinking I've been there and done that. And you, when you get your novel published or your next novel published, may also experience this. Here's some of the article, and listen to this. Years after she started writing her debut novel, Chelsea Banning settled into Pretty Good Books in Ashtabula, Ohio, on a Saturday in early December for her first author signing. Plenty of open seats. She waited with neatly stacked paperback copies of her book, Of Crowns and Legends, which she calls a King Arthur reimagining that takes place 20 years after his death. She had props, including a crown, a little statue of a knight kneeling and holding a pen, and pictures of friends dressed as her characters in medieval garb. The 33-year-old librarian in Girard, Ohio, whose real name is Chelsea Vandergrift Podgorny, was optimistic. Friends in the area said they wanted to stop by and have their books signed, and 37 people responded to the Facebook event, listing that they would attend. During her three-hour signing, just two people showed up. The next morning, Ms. Banning tweeted to her roughly 100 followers that she was, quote, pretty bummed about it, upset, honestly, and a little embarrassed, end quote. She felt a little sheepish after writing the tweet and planned to remove it, she recalls in an interview. She didn't want the no-shows to feel bad. Then, Henry Winkler chimed in, yes, the Fonz himself. Quote, that is the beginning, the star wrote, retweeting her post to his one million followers. Quote, then the word gets out and they come. She isn't sure how, but her online confession has gone viral and was ricocheting around the arts and literary world. Thousands were retweeting it, including big-name authors. She had exposed a truth of the publishing business. Lonely events are a rite of passage for authors. Join the club, Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale, and many other, author, uh, many other books, responded. Quote, I did a signing to which nobody came except a guy who wanted to buy some scotch tape and thought I was the help. That's Margaret Atwood. Stephen King, the king of horror himself, jumped in, writing, Dear Chelsea Banning, when you do your next signing, let us know. We'll let everybody know. In an interview, Mr. Winkler says Ms. Banning's tweet struck a familiar chord. In 2003, he held an an event at a bookstore promoting the first installment in the Hank Zipser children's book series he wrote with Lynn Oliver. It was billed as a reading and a chance to meet Henry Winkler. Six people came. Quote, it doesn't get easier, Mr. Winkler says. Pulitzer Prize winner Juno Diaz says one person, a friend, 
attended his first reading as a published author. Quote, I did a reading for my friend and the embarrassed booksellers and called it a win, he says by email. Jody Picoult, who has sold millions of copies of her books, says once, at a signing at her hometown bookstore in Hanover, New Hampshire, she sat alone until a wandering patron needed help finding the bathroom. Ms. Banning, the author in Ohio, says she has since gained thousands of Twitter followers, held a packed signing at her library, received interest from literary agents, and sold 7,000 books. She has another signing coming up at Pretty Good Books. Stephen King has already tweeted about it. That's the end of the Wall Street Journal article by Chris Cornelis. I've had some successful book signings where a little line of people wanted me to sign a novel, and I've also had disasters. One time at a Barnes & Noble a bookstore, my nice Barnes & Noble escort, uh, escort took me to the store's theater. Must have been a hundred seats there, all, ar- all arranged in perfect rows. Not one person came to the signing. The theater echoed with my embarrassment. It was a lesson in being humble and a reminder that I have much to be humble about. So when you go to your first book signing, be prepared. You might have plenty of customers, but maybe the worst happens and the room echoes. Knowing that it's also happened to Margaret Atwood and Jody Picoult will make it bearable. I have one technique regarding these book signings, and I highly recommend it. My wife, Patty, attends these book signings, and if there aren't any customers for my book, she stands at the table and chats with me. (laughs) That way, potential customers don't have to make eye contact with me and and the author and another person talking at the table is less intimidating to customers, and they'll more readily approach. How's that for an insider's tip? Let's talk about fitting dialogue to our genre. We spoke about narrative voice a while ago. Voice is a term of art in writing, and it's your writing style. It's how the novel sounds when read aloud. It's your way of crafting sentences and paragraph paragraphs, your way with words. Your voice, your combination of words, can give your story a certain feeling and leaves reader readers with a mood. I'd like to talk about that in this episode, specifically how to create a voice that fits your genre. Authors most commonly tell their stories in their own voices, their their natural voices, which they use every day when speaking with people, and I suppose when thinking, uh, which they find easiest. It's not crafted. In fact, many authors are unaware of their own voices. They've developed them over their own lives, and now they use them in their writing as they would ride a bicycle without thinking about it. To some extent, your narrative voice sounds as if you're speaking. I've been told this several times that my uh, about my writing. It sounds like me talking. That's how it is with me and maybe with you. I don't think about my writing voice. I type the words and hope the scene is clear and entertaining, but I don't think particularly about my voice. But the dialogue of your characters 
often should sound like they sound, not necessarily how you sound. Characters in certain genres often sound like characters in that genre. Readers choose certain stories for certain reasons. One of the reasons is to interact with a character who sounds a certain way, that is, who addresses the world in a, in a certain way. Here are some examples of dialogue and narrative that fits uh, certain genres. Sometimes we should fit our character's dialogue and perhaps our narrative to the genre we're writing in. Uh, the first is the magical dialogue. The language in Star in the Star Wars movies and the novels Lord of the Rings and The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and many other novels, that language appeals to readers who are looking for magic in their reading. When Obi-Wan Kenobi says, May the Force be with you, it fits perfectly, even though we know real people don't talk like that. This is the, the talk of magic. And it's used by characters in science fiction and fantasy and sometimes in historicals and horror and others. It's a rolling sound with echoes. It sounds a bit like the voice of God. Here's an example of magical, uh, the magical voice from uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Here's J.R.R. Tolkien. A dozen hobbits led by Sam, leaped forward with a cry and flung the villain to the ground. Sam drew his sword. No, Sam, said Frodo, do not kill him even now, for he has not hurt me. And in any case, I do not wish him to be slain in this evil mood. He was great once of a noble kind, and we should not dare to raise our hand against, our hands against. He is fallen, and his cure is beyond us, but I would still spare him. I hope that he may find it. Saruman rose to his feet and stared at Frodo. There was a strange look in his eyes of mingled wonder and respect and hatred. You have grown, halfling, he said. Yes, you have grown very much. You are wise and cruel. You have robbed my vengeance of sweetness, and now I must go hence in bitterness, in debt to your mercy. I hate it and you. Well, I go and I will trouble you no more, but do not expect me to wish you health and long life. You will have neither, but that is not my doing. I merely foretell. What makes this sound like it sounds? Well, there aren't any contractions. The words are spelled out fully. For example, do not kill him is, is not don't kill him. It's elegant, uh, such as you have robbed my vengeance of sweetness. That's a lovely sentence. And it's direct. Do not expect me to wish you health and long life. You will have neither. If you want to write certain kinds of sci-fi and fantasy, uh, and some other novels, uh, consider becoming adept at magical language. Now, how do you do that? You read a lot of it. You'll, uh, you'll learn its cadences. Another kind of dialogue is expository dialogue. Some genres, such as literary and mainstream and historicals, often use 
expository dialogue. Writers have a tendency to use long and dull passages of narrative to get across information in these genres. For the reader, the most engaging way to get across information is through dialogue. Here's an example of using dialogue to dispense information from from Barbara Kingsolver's Poisonwood Bible, her novel. Uh, Leah has just put her little sister in the swing outside their hut in in South Africa and is combing her hair when the village schoolteacher, Anatoly, comes by. He's trying to explain to Leah, uh, not too successfully, about the Congo. Listen to this expository uh, dialogue from Barbara Kingsolver. I drew the edge of the comb slowly down the center of Ruth May's head, making a careful part. Father had said the slums outside Leopoldville would be set right by American aid after independence. Maybe I was foolish to believe him. There were shanties just as poor in Georgia on the edge of Atlanta, where black and white divided, and that was smack in the middle of America. Can you just do that, what they did down there, announce your own country, I asked? Prime Minister Lumumba says no, absolutely not. He has asked the United Nations to bring an army to restore unity. Is there going to be a war? There is already a kind of war, I think. Moist Chambi has Belgians and mercenary soldiers working for him. I don't think they'll leave without a fight. And Katanga is not the only place where they are throwing stones. There is a difference, a different war in Matady. Thiesville, Bendy, and Leopoldville. People are very angry at the Europeans. They are even hurting women and little children. What are they so mad at the white people for? Anatoly sighed. Those are big cities where the boa and the hen curl up together. There is only trouble. People have seen so, uh, people have seen so much of the Europeans and all the things they had. They imagined, after independence, life would immediately become fair. Can't they be patient? Could you be? If your bell was empty and you saw the whole baskets of bread on the other side of a window, would you continue waiting patiently, Bean, or would you throw a rock? Let's take a quick break. Hey guys, this is your girl Liram, and you're listening to Self-Reflection Podcast. Thank you guys for joining me on another episode of Self-Reflection Podcast. I hope this podcast episode finds you in the best possible state that you can be in for yourself today. Um, You know, and if you're not doing your best, I hope, you know, you find some time to care for your mental health, physical health, emotional health, spiritual health, and your psychological health. You know, I hope you find some time to do some self-reflection. Just gather yourself and, you know... Find the best possible way you can deal with what you're dealing with in this moment, right? Uh, This expository dialogue from Barbara Kingsolver reveals important parts of the setting and the story situation. It's an explanation, but it doesn't bog down. This bantering dialogue between characters can, can keep things moving. Uh, dialogue is a wonderful way to get across the information the reader needs to know. But there's a trap in this expository dialogue. It's, it's too easy to have the characters go on too long. 
the writer gets caught up and wants to tell all of it right then. And I suffer from this. When I learn something, I like to write about it, and I have to throttle myself back. Uh, another form of dialogue that fits the genre is dark dialogue. And it's often used in horror and mystery and sometimes thrillers and sometimes mainstream novels, depending on the scene. Dark dialogue works to keep the reader in a state of suspense and maybe fear. Uh, usually it's achieved with a tone of menacing suspense and foreshadowing of what is to come. Uh, dark dialogue telegraphs impending peril. Here's an example from Stephen King's The Shining. Danny is the son of the unsympathetic protagonist Jack in dialogue with his imaginary friend Tony. He has imagined Tony to help him cope with his insane father. Tony's actually Danny in a few years. Here, uh, Tony is trying to warn Danny of something bad about to happen to his mother. He began to struggle, and the darkness and the hallway began to waver. Tony became chimerical and indistinct. Don't, Tony called. Don't, Danny. Don't do that. She's not going to be dead. She's not. Then you have to help her, Danny. You're in a place deep down in your own mind, the place where I am. I am part of you, Danny. You're Tony. You're not me. I want my mommy. I want my mommy. I didn't bring you here, Danny. You brought yourself because you knew. No. You've always known, Tony continued, and he began to walk closer. For the first time, Tony began to walk closer. You're deep down in yourself in a place where nothing comes through. We're alone here for a little while, Danny. This is an overlook where no one can ever come. No clocks work here. None of the keys fit them, and they can never be wound up. The doors have never been opened, and no one has ever stayed in the rooms. But you can't stay long, because it's coming. It, Danny whispered fearfully, and as he did so, the irregular pounding noise seemed to grow closer, louder. His terror cool and distant a moment ago, became a more immediate thing. Isn't that wonderful? Stephen King knows how to do this. A reason this is dark is that Tony seems like a friend, but Danny and the reader aren't sure. Tony's delivering bad news. Should Tony believe him? A threat might be being delivered. The purpose of dark dialogue is to keep the reader on edge. Another kind of dialogue that we can practice and, and do in a certain genre is breathless dialogue. Breathless dialogue also creates suspense, and, and breathless dialogue is used in action and adventure and suspense thrillers and many other genres. Here is Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, where we have three characters trying to get from one side of the lake to the other without the Tyrannosaurus seeing them. But then Lex starts to cough. 
Lex coughed loudly, explosively in Tim's ears. The sound echoed across the water like a gunshot. The tyrannosaur yawned lazily and scratched its ear with its hind foot, just like a dog. It yawned again. It was groggy after its big meal, and it woke up slowly. On the boat, Lex was making little gargling sounds. Lex, shut up, Tim said. I can't help it, she whispered, and then she coughed again. Grant rode hard, moving the raft powerfully into the center of the lagoon. On the shore, the tyrannosaur stumbled to its feet. I couldn't help it, Timmy, Lex shrieked miserably. I couldn't help it. Shh! Grant was rowing as fast as he could. Anyway, it doesn't matter, she said. We're far enough away. He can't swim. Of course he can swim, you little idiot. Tim shouted at her. On the shore, the tyrannosaur stepped off the rocks and plunged into the water. It moved strongly in the lagoon after them. Well, how should I know, she said. <laughs> Everybody knows Tyrannosaur can swim. It's in all the books. Anyway, all reptiles can swim. Snakes can't. Of course snakes can, you idiot. This fabulous dialogue is used throughout the novel. These are real folks in real trouble. Uh, suspense and thriller readers love this kind of dialogue. How do you do it? Here are some ideas on how to do uh, breathless dialogue. Uh, if, if the scene needs to be described, the setting or some explanations, do it before this action begins. Uh, go back and forth between the dialogue and the action. Have a little dialogue and then a little action. This back and forth gives the scene a, a strong percussive quality. Uh, quality. Uh, avoid interior monologue. When the action is heavy, characters should speak what they are thinking, not just think it. There's usually no need to visit the characters' minds. If a character's mental state is important during a scene like this, and it often is, show the state. Don't visit the character's mind. In Instead of, she was afraid, try, she gasped, which is showing. And then there's candid dialogue. Usually this dialogue is used where two teenagers are talking. Uh, adults have learned to be careful and judicious when they talk, but teens fill their conversation with weirdness and directness. It's wonderful. An example is from Anne Brasher's The Sisterhood of Traveling Pants. Effie and Lena are speaking, and Effie is trying to get Lena to admit that she's in love with a certain boy. You are in love with Costos, Effie accused. No, I'm not. If Lena hadn't known she was in love with Costos before, she did now, because she knew what a lie felt like. You are too, and the sad thing is, you are too much of a chicken to do anything about it but mope. Lena sank into her covers again. As usual, Effie had summed up her complex anguishes mental state in one sentence. Just admit it, Effie pressed. Lena wouldn't. She crossed her arms stubbornly over her pajama top. Okay, don't, Effie said. I know it's true anyway. Well, you're wrong, Lena snapped babyishly. 
Effie sat down on the bed. Her face was serious now. Lena, listen to me, okay? We don't have much more time here. You are in love. I've never seen anything like this before. You have to be brave, okay? You have to go and tell Costos how you feel. I swear to God, if you don't, you will regret it for the rest of your cowardly life. <laughs> Lena knew this was all true. Effie had hit the mark so blatantly, Lena didn't even bother refuting it. But F, she said, her voice belying her raw agony, what if he doesn't like me back? Effie considered this. Lena waited, expecting, hoping for reassurance. She wanted Effie to say that, of course, Costos liked her back. How could he not? But Effie didn't say that. Instead, she took Lena's hand in hers. That's what I mean about being brave. Oh, that's so great. This is raw energy and teen talk. But uh, unlike a lot of teen conversation in real life, this dialogue has a point. It isn't aimless. It uh, is important and it moves the story forward. There are other kinds of dialogue that we can use. Most of the time we tell our stories on our, in our own voices, our, our natural voices that we use when writing and when living. We don't have to think about our voices and we can concentrate on the story we're writing rather than shading our natural voices into a, into a fictional construct. But sometimes a novel or a scene in a novel benefits from an adopted voice, one used to establish certain moods. When we have such a scene, consider adopting a particular voice for the scene. How can we learn how to do this? I don't know of a better way than to read authors who are good at this. Uh, we'll learn from their expertise. I have the pleasure of announcing that my wife Patty and I are going on a holiday beginning this week. I won't be doing podcasts until I return in several weeks. Don't worry about my cat Jack. Relatives will be living here while we are away taking care of him and I've instructed that he eats four times a day. A ridiculous burden for my relatives but they know how Jack operates and he'll be in good hands. Until next time, some weeks from now, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>